Well, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 John. We're going to jump right in. I'm going to start by asking you one question. We'll kind of use it as a transition. Uh, The question is this. If Jesus were coming back in a week, what would change? If Jesus was coming back in a week, and we knew it, Kevin predicted it, it's happening... If, if he was coming back in a week, what would change? Jeff asked uh, you to think on that question a little bit this last week. And so, you tell me, what, what would change? Would anything change with you? Would you act differently? Would you be at the Olympics right now? Because you figure, why not? Let's go see some sporting event. Would you start with dessert? Or just like finish with it too? Like, just, that's it? I'm just going to eat dessert from now on? And what, what would change? Another question, maybe, is what would change with your faith? Would anything change about your faith? You don't have to answer this out loud, but I would imagine some of us would be tempted to do more. Maybe we look at our life and we go, man, we've got a week. I'm going to squeeze in as much as possible. Because he's coming back and I want him to be as excited as he could be. And I would be as excited as I can be when I see him. Other people would go, you know what, instead of adding something, I need to start taking a few things away. Maybe stop doing certain things that I'm currently doing. I think it's an interesting question, and it might not be a question that any of us can fully answer, but it's an interesting question because it... It challenges us to consider our motives, our heart, why we do what we do. Because I think for some of us, doing more carries with it this idea that I somehow have to attain the favor of God by what I do, by who I am, what I accomplish. It's also sometimes the same motivation why we stop doing something that maybe we should have stopped doing a long time ago is because we're afraid that when he comes back, we'll be caught doing it. I was sitting with a group of pastors just outside here on the couches the other day. It was about two weeks ago. And I uh, asked all of them that question. If Jesus was coming back in a week, what would change? And initially, all of our response was, man, I for sure would stop this, and I would for sure start this. That Our initial thought was, man, I, I mean, what could we add to our life? What could we accomplish? What could we do? And then what could we take away? And we started chatting about it for a few minutes. And then I remember stating, does anyone remember what Martin Luther a long time ago said, that if Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would he do? He was asked that question. Maybe you know the answer. He said, plant a tree. Now, there's lots of theological reasons why he said that. We won't get into all of them this morning, but one of the things that struck me is that Martin Luther, with great confidence, basically said, nothing would change. I would just continue to march forward as I'm currently living now. Would that be said of you? Would that be said of me? Because I think as we sit back, we have to ask ourselves, what would John do? What would the gospel communicate we should do? What would the scriptures require of us? If you're not already there, turn to 1 John chapter 2. Because the answer is very clear in this text. The answer, and you've heard it 
a couple times in this series, and you'll probably hear it a few more, the answer is abide. That's what John says. If you want the answer to the question, what would you do if Jesus was coming back in a week, he would say, abide. Just continue to abide. That's the answer. Here's where, how he says it in 1 John 2, verses 28 through 3.3. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Behold, or beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. John starts off and he says, real simple, listen up, little children. And he's 90 at the time he writes this, so you can call anybody little children. Listen up, little children, you wee ones. Let me tell you something. Abide in Him. Abide in Him so that you will be confident. So that you will be confident when He appears. It's interesting. He gives us a reason why He wants us to abide. It's so we won't shrink back. So that we won't be nervous about His arrival, but that we'll have great confidence in His arrival. I remember uh, my mom used to say that my father would be home soon. That meant one of two things. Either I was going to cheer when he got home because I couldn't wait to see my dad and we'd go play games or sports or we'd kick a ball around or we'd do something. Or, depending on how I had behaved earlier in the day, when she said, your dad will be home soon, it meant like, oh crap. Like, I'm, I'm in big trouble, and I know it, and the day of reckoning is about to come, right? It was one of those. So it was always this, like, either I'm greatly anticipating his arrival, or I'm a bit fearful of his arrival. And John is saying, I want you to walk into his arrival with great confidence. And he begins to describe how. But before he gets to the how, let's look at verse 28 here for a second. Verse 28 is one of those key verses in the whole book. Uh, I would, many would describe it as the hinge verse, where the first half of the book finds its conclusion in verse 28, and the second half of the book finds its like launch pad in verse 28. That a lot of things stem from that, that the author draws from. And so, verse 28 again says this, um, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. I want to look at three words really quick before we get to the main part of the text. Three words are this. The first one is the word appears. Appears literally would mean in the Greek this, when the lights come on. It's that idea. When the lights come on, when everything changes, when the way it is right now is completely different, when He appears. What's interesting about that for me is that this tells us that the story is going somewhere, right? That there is stuff to come. That He is going to appear. That your life, my life, your actions, your words, the things you do and say and think and feel matter because they are a part of a grand story that is moving forward, right? 
that we are a part of something that is marching toward a conclusion. And so Jesus is going to at some point appear. And He says that when He appears, we're hoping that you have, or we want you to be assured that you have, confidence. Now the word confidence really has no English equivalent. It's found in two other sections of First John. It's found in chapter 3, verse 21, if you want to look at that later. It just talks about the idea of being confident before God. And then also in chapter 5, verse 14, it says that you can have confidence. This word confidence is um, probably the best way to describe it is uh, a bold, crazy assurance. Like just so confident that you are almost arrogant of the fact. That you believe it so strongly that there's no hesitation in you that you have this bold, crazy confidence. That's what that second word means. The third word that I think is helpful for us to understand is the word coming. It's this expectation of Jesus' arrival. It, it carries with it the idea of an official visit. It would be like the President of the United States and us knowing that he's going to show up in Spokane for an official visit, that things in the city would change, that people would adjust, that there would be this expectation like, how soon will this be? Kind of like the London Olympics. They knew it was coming. They knew there would be the opening ceremony. They'd been planning for it for years and years and years. And everybody's anticipating. Everybody's focus in London is on that. Like, the, the games begin. They're going to start soon. There's that anticipation of... His arrival. So the text is saying, when He comes, when the lights come on, when everything changes, you should have bold, crazy confidence when He shows up for His official visit. And then the text tells us how that's possible. And He gives two reasons. The first one is this. It's all about your identity. It's all about your identity in Christ. The text says in verse, or verse 1 of chapter 3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He starts off and he says, see. This word see means behold. Check it out. Pay attention to this. Don't miss it. Behold. Then the second phrase is what kind of. The, the, the Greek word for what kind of carries it with it, the idea. It's only been used six times in the entire New Testament. And it means this, that you have astonishment and admiration at the statement. Astonishment. So he's like, check it out. Pay attention. Don't miss this. You should be astonished by this. And then he says, the love of God. Not just that God loves you, but that he talks about the extent of it, that He lavishes it on us, that He pours it out abundantly. So He says, pay attention. This is deep love to a great extent from your Father. So much so that you should be astonished that, and here's His point, that you should be called children of God. And that is what you are. I mean, that's unbelievable that we have the ability to be called children of God. And he states it as a fact. Not as a, just hey, hopefully at some point. That if you are already in Christ, it is true of you that you are a child of God. 
He could have used any other descriptor. He could have said that you're a friend of God. He could have said that God likes you a lot. He could have said all kinds of things, but what he says is that you are a child of God. Why does he use that description? I'm convinced that if you looked at Tyler and Maureen's faces up here, you would know why he uses that description. That if, if you're looking at your son or your daughter, there's this overwhelming, you can't begin to explain it kind of love that's different than a friend, that's different than anything else in the world. Many of you have seen pictures of my kids. This is one picture. This is my daughter, Evie. We went to the store the other day. We were trying on glasses. And just laughing and having a good time. And she's two. She'll be three in September. I'm at a stage in my life, I think, where I had my other kids a while ago. And, uh, and they're, you know, like the youngest of them is Mason. He's eight. And we just, I mean, loved our kids. And I'm now at this place where I'm loving them being old. But for, for her, just, man, she is at that perfect, fun, this is amazing stage where I'm just enjoying every moment with her. And I think the amount of love that I have for her, the way I feel about her, and then to understand that what Jesus says in this text is that how I feel about her, he feels even more about you. That he feels that way about me. That we are the children of God. That we have been adopted. That we've been brought into this family. That we are loved beyond measure. That is how he describes us. That's right. He says we are the children of God. And sometimes... This comes up again and again throughout Scripture. And the reason I think it comes up over and over and over is because I still don't get it. Right? Like, I kind of go, yeah, he likes me a little bit. And then I realize, no, no, he really does. And then I realize it again, and I have to be reminded over and over and over. Brennan Manning makes this comment. He says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. Your true identity is that God loves you and He calls you a child. And the text says right at the very beginning in verse 3, it says, See, behold. It's also a command. It's not just like a, hey, check this out. It's also a command to say, reflect on this. For the sake of time, we won't do it now, but I would, I would encourage you, go home and reflect on that. Write it down. Write down every promise that God has said is yours in Him. Write it down. Everything that He describes you as, that He loves you, that He counts the number of hairs on your head, that He knows you intimately, that He sings songs over you. I mean, Tyler Marine just sang a song over Silas. God is doing that all of the time for you. We each have our own song, our baby dedication song, right? And he keeps singing it. He collects your tears in a bottle. The list goes on and on. All these things that he says are true because of this unique relationship with you. We can be confident when he arrives because our identity is in him. I don't have to earn that. I don't have to do anything to acquire that. It is present when I received it. 
from him. The second idea is this in the text. It's about resemblance. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. This is not a future thing. We are His children now. And what we have been has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. This is probably an even more radical concept to me in this text than the one I just shared. He says, We shall be like Him. What? That's crazy. That we shall be like Him. Now this is not a new concept just to this text. In fact, in 1 Corinthians it says this, Just as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In 2 Corinthians it says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. See, this is an amazing concept that me and my brokenness and my weakness are becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ all of the time. That I look like my Father more every day. C.S. Lewis said it this way, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He's saying, like, listen, you are among a group of people who are changing and will one day be glorified, will one day be like Him. We will see Him as He is and we will be like Him. We're becoming more and more every day like our father. I remember growing up, I lived right near a college campus. My father was a professor and coach at the campus. Still is. He's been there for 40-some years. And, uh, and I would walk on campus, and I would just be in the gym, or I'd be walking down a sidewalk, and someone would come up to me. And I, I mean, it happened almost every time I was there. They would look at me, and they would go, are you Chris's son? And I'm like, I've never met you before. I have no idea who you are. Why do you ask me such things? Like it was, like what, what, what's going on? And they would come up and they would ask all the time. And I was like, yeah. I said, and at first I'm like, did you meet me? Did I, do I know you somehow? And they're like, oh no, you can just tell. I go, what do you mean? They go, the way you walk, the way you talk, your mannerisms, the way you laughed at that, you're your dad. That's just you. There it is. I see it. I see your dad in you. And I would hear it over and over and over again. That you look like your dad. You talk like him, you act like him, the mannerisms are the same. I thought, well, someday that will go away, right? (laughs) And I'm with my kids now and I do something. And I'm like, oh crap, I am my dad. Like I've, (laughs) I've completely turned into him. I mean, the, the way that he would say something, like, I just said it exactly like he said it. It's crazy. But it's one of those things that, that you can't help, because family resemblance is a powerful evidence of family relationship. Family resemblance is a powerful evidence of family relationship. It's just the way it is, right? I, I don't work for it. I don't strive for it. I just am a little bit like my father. It's in my DNA. It's in my genes. 
right? So every child begins to look like their parents, talk like their parents, act like their parents, think like their parents. So it is with the children of God that we become like Jesus. We act like Him, we talk like Him, we think like Him, we become like Him. In fact, 1 John 2.29, this text we just read says this, it's because you've been born of Him. If you've truly been born of God, you will carry the DNA. You will become like Him. You will look more and more like Him. In fact, the text says this, if you want to know what it means to look like Jesus, you want to know how to carry the DNA, here are some of the characteristics. Here's what it looks like. In verse, or chapter 2, verse 29, it says, Righteousness. You will begin to exude the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. Purity. In chapter 3, verse 2, that those of us that have that hope purify themselves as He is pure. We become pure like Him. Obedience. In chapter 2, verse 3, that we walk like Jesus walked, that we obey as Jesus obeyed, that we live in holiness, and then that we love our brothers and sisters. That children of God just love. They love their brothers and sisters. And so these are some of the characteristics. John's whole book describes what it looks like to look like Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to look like Jesus? Read through the book because he says again and again, this is what it looks like to look like Jesus. And so he says, you'll carry the characteristics. But what's also true is if you don't carry the characteristics, if you don't look like Jesus, you have to ask yourself if you have the same Father. Right? Where I'd walk around campus with my friend, Mike. Nobody ever asked him if he was Chris's son. I'd be playing basketball with my friend, Ben. No one came up and said, oh, you must be the son of Chris Davis. No. Everyone knew Greg. Greg and I didn't look alike. Everyone knew I was and they weren't. Why? Because I had my dad as a father. And that's what this text is getting at too. That if you have God as your father, you begin to look like him. If you don't have God as your father, take check, take account, look at it. Look at your life. Look at who you are and you can figure it out pretty quick. But he says we're all becoming more and more like Jesus. Let me end with, with this quote by C.S. Lewis. Because I think uh, it's important for us to recognize that coming, becoming like Jesus is this progressive thing. He says this, God said that we were gods and He was going to make, his, make good His words. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or goddess, dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful but that is what we are in for. See, the truth is that we are on this journey to become like Him. In fact, He said that He who started the work will be faithful to complete it. It's my job to abide. It's His job to grow me. Right? 
So when we're reminded of this passage, we can answer this question that I asked you at the beginning. When Jesus comes back, what would change? And hopefully the answer for all of us would be nothing. I'll just continue to abide. I'll continue to be with my Father. I'll continue to carry the identity as a child of God. And I will continue to resemble or look like what He looks like because I am a child of the King. And I can't take that away. And so I can stand confident that when He shows up, there's going to be a welcoming party. Let's pray.